History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 96, Thomas Nash, satirist, pamphleteer and playwright. Last time, some of the minor Elizabethan playwrights took centre stage, and today, before we get to some of the real big hitters, I want to spend some time on another more minor playwright, but a man who was a prominent pamphleteer and satirist in his time. The work of Thomas Nash isn't widely read or performed these days, so why devote a whole episode to one obscure writer? It's a good question, and I like to think that I've got a good answer. Obscure as he is now, Nash was at the centre of literary life in London for a few years in the 1590s, and he serves as, I think, a good illustration of what life was like for the playwrights of the time. His life is, of course, unique, but he spent much of his time near the centre of the London literary set and watched its members with a keen eye. He defended the Church of England resolutely in his pamphlets, but also challenged authority and the people who controlled it in a fearless way. He ran into his share of trouble, he had his share of success and popularity, and his reputation has suffered after his death because of many complex factors. Nash was prominent just at the time when Shakespeare was becoming famous, and he serves as a good conduit for our understanding of the milieu of the London playwrights of the time. But that is not to take anything away from Nash's story itself. He is worthy of a mention in his own right, even though his direct contribution to theatre was admittedly small. He also gives us a way in to one of the most dramatic stories of the London theatre as the 16th century came to its close. Thomas Nash was born in November 1567, the younger son of a clergyman and the second of his seven children to survive childhood. Although born in Lowestoft on the Suffolk coast, his family moved some 40 miles inland when his father took on a parish in the small village of West Harling in Norfolk in 1573. His father was probably responsible for the education of the boys in the village and Thomas seems to have been a good student. He attended Cambridge University from 1582 as a Sizer student. That's an undergraduate who performs tasks for others to help finance his studies. It's possible that he wrote a lost play, Terminus et Non-Terminus, with Robert Miles just after he graduated in 1588 and while Miles was still attending St John's College. These details come from The Trimming of Thomas Nash, published in 1597 by Richard Litchfield, a barber surgeon, which is a critical presentation of Nash and his life in a satiric vein, so we have to be slightly cautious about the facts of Nash's life as presented in it. But on the matter of the play, the consensus is that it was a genuine event. Litchfield reports that as a student, Nash flourished in all impudence towards scholars and abuse of the townsmen, insomuch as to this day the townsmen call an erudite and vaunted scholar, of whom there is great hope, a very Nash. Then, being Bachelor of Art, which by great labour he got, to show afterwards that he was not unworthy of it, had a hand in a show called Terminus and Non-Terminus, for which his partner in it was expelled the college. But this foresaid Nash played in it, as I suppose, the varlet of clubs, which he acted with such natural affection that all the spectators took him to be the very same. The play is lost, so we can't judge it, but if Miles was expelled from Cambridge because of the play, which seems likely, as he recalled his time at Cambridge in a later poem and mentions playing Lord Terminus, 
then we can only assume that it was a satirical and too overtly political piece to be acceptable. This is just at the time when the fellows of the college were trying to crack down on theatrical activities by the students. By 1588, they were looking to ban college drama altogether, requesting that no lord of misrule, lottery or salting be used on the college, because there is nothing sought herein but disgrace, disfaming and abuse of some persons. Nash's father died in 1587, which may have prompted his leaving university rather than progressing to a master's degree. It's also possible that his departure and move away from Cambridge was due to the fallout from Terminus et non Terminus. Whatever the reasons, he moved to London the following year, where he quickly became part of the University Wits set. He may well have known Robert Green from his Cambridge days, and it seems likely that he was good friends with Christopher Marlowe too. He may also have known Gabriel Harvey from Cambridge, but, if not, he certainly ran into him in London, and the two entered into a long and simmering row with each other that would last a lifetime, and beyond, as Harvey's writings on Nash certainly influenced his reputation after his death. Harvey, you will remember, was a sharp-tongued satirist who also criticised the character of Robert Greene. In 1589, Nash published The Anatomy of Absurdity, the first of several works published in quick succession, and began working for John Whitgift, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was keen to promote his work. The bishops were particularly concerned about a number of pamphlets that were circulating that criticised the character of most of the prominent Anglican clergymen of the time. The pamphlets were produced on a movable hand press, and the printers had so far evaded capture. The bishops commissioned Nash, along with the court playwright John Lilly, to respond to the pamphlets in kind. The illicit press was eventually discovered in Lancashire and destroyed, but the experience seems to have helped Nash to develop his witty and satiric writing style. Although he often wrote under pseudonyms, he developed a very recognisable writing style that involved the use of very long sentences with clauses that changed direction unexpectedly leaving the reader unsure as to the direction of the thoughts until they are eventually resolved. Indeed, sometimes even the ultimate meaning is left uncertain. The precise authorship of these pamphlets is difficult to define, but thanks to this styling, scholars almost all agree that works like An Almond for a Parrot by Cuthbert Curry Knave and A Wonderful Astrological Prognostication by Adam Foulweather are certainly Nash's work. An Armoured for a Parrot is dedicated to the popular actor of comic parts, Will Kemp. A Wonderful Astrological Prognostication was a satiric response to a pamphlet written by Richard Harvey, brother of Gabriel, whom Nash was already in dispute with, thanks to his association with Robert Greene and his support for the bishops. Richard Harvey had written a series of predictions of events that would be caused by the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter that would be visible in 1583. None of the earthly events he had predicted came about, and Nash took the opportunity to ridicule him and, by association, his brother. Nash then wrote an introduction to a pirated edition of Sir Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence Astrophil and Stella. The edition was called in by William Cecil, the chief minister, presumably at the request of the author, who had considerable influence at court. A second edition was legally published without Nash's introduction the following year, but we can say for sure 
that Nash was therefore known to the Privy Council by then, if he hadn't already been spotted before, as a member of the Awkward Squad. After this, Nash took every opportunity to satirise Sidney in his work. Lord Strang, that spelt strange but pronounced Strang, the 5th Earl of Derby, was already a patron of Thomas Kidd and Christopher Marlowe and his own troop of players when he added Nash to his beneficiaries. It was his men who first performed Shakespeare's Henry VI play cycle at the Rose Theatre. Although Shakespeare takes credit, it has long been held that these plays included significant contributions and that Nash's hand can be detected in them, and particularly in the very opening act of the sequence. Nash makes some reference to the Henry VI plays in some of his later works, possibly as a means of some subtle self-promotion. In his late work, Nash's Lenten Stuff, he also praises Johnson's The Case is Altered, which is a particularly un-Johnson-like play, so the thinking is that Nash had a significant hand in this too. These snippets and his association with Johnson on his lost play The Isle of Dogs, written in 1597, place Nash at the centre of the university wits, in the group that revolved around Lord Strang, and as a playwright working with the best in the period, Shakespeare, Johnson and Marlowe, and significantly for Shakespeare and Johnson at an early point in their careers. Like all playwrights and authors of his time, he also turned his hand to poetry, although in his case he was never considered a great poet. But he did reach some fame through the notorious poem The Choice of Valentines, which also became known as Nash's Dildo. Written for Lord Strang, it is described as a pornographic or erotic narrative poem, depending on your point of view, which has survived in three manuscript forms. In fact, it was only distributed in manuscript at the time, and not published until the end of the 19th century. The plot of the poem concerns Tomalin, the hero, searching out his lover, who's been forced to take refuge in a brothel. Posing as a customer, he seeks her out, and a detailed description of their sexual encounter follows. It is now thought of as a valuable piece for what it might tell us about what Elizabethan attitudes were towards gender and sexuality, but at the time it was used as a club to beat Nash with. Gabriel Harvey called it a packet of bawdy and filthy rhymes. In 1592, Nash wrote Piers Penniless, a sweeping satirical take on the literary London scene. It proved very popular, being reprinted twice within five years, with his success only being dulled by the deaths of Green and then Marlowe and then several others in his circle in quick succession. He avoided the plague by retiring with the Archbishop to Croydon, then just a small village well outside London. His only surviving play, Summer's Last Will and Testament, was authored that year and performed in October. Although there is no official record of that performance to date the play, there are references in the play to the particularly severe presence of the plague that year, as well as a drought that reduced the water of the level of the Thames to something that hadn't been seen in living memory. The play, which is really more of a court mask, opens with defences offered to the audience by the real-life character of Will Summers, acting as the chorus, who was Henry VIII's favourite court jester, suggesting that the Archbishop was present at the premiere. The play was published with an introduction by Nash in 1600. Nash refers to the piece as a show. It's a series of tableau, as a personified summer watches events that signal his passing for the year. The text is laden with references to death and the presence of the plague. 
In fact, plague features large in many of Nash's works and illustrates just how the ever-pleasant threat of that disease and the search for the cause of the displeasure of God that was the cause of the plague were matters that shaped a large part of the lives of Londoners. A song that Nash wrote for the play, which is sung while Summer is finally dying, is called A Litany in the Time of Plague. For all of that seriousness, the play is an entertainment and a comedy, but it's laced with intellectual content that had not previously been seen in English comedies, and as such, it's a bridge between the mask, early comedy, and the later comic plays of Shakespeare and Johnson. It is the only surviving play that is thought to have been solely authored by Nash. In the early 1590s, several pamphlets followed where dating is uncertain. But we can say with a little give and take that in 1593 he wrote his best-known work, The Unfortunate Traveller, which he dedicated to the third Earl of Southampton, who had also patronised Shakespeare's two early narrative poems. In Nash's case, the connection seems less significant and the dedication was probably a speculative one that didn't yield any results. The story, in picaresque style, follows protagonist Jack Wilton, who undertakes a long trip through Europe. Instead of the young man sampling the cultural delights of the continent, he encounters battles and poverty, corruption and hypocrisy wherever he goes. His next work, Christ's Tears Over Jerusalem, was dedicated to Elizabeth Carey, sister-in-law of Lord Strang and wife of Sir George Carey, patron of the Lord Chamberlain's men from their founding in 1594. A passage in that work led Nash to being imprisoned for insulting London and Londoners. He was not a stranger to prison, having spent short terms of incarceration for debt. Not an uncommon thing at the time, but this was a more serious charge. This is a taste of what he thought of London. London, thou art the seeded garden of sin, the sea that sucks in all the scummy channels of the realm. The honestest for thee, for the most, are either lawyers or usurers. Deceit is that which advances the greatest sort of thy chiefest. Let them look that their wretches shall rust and canker, being wet and dewed in orphans' tears. The Lord thinketh it was as good for him to kill with the plague as to let them kill with oppression. He beholdeth from on high all subtle conveyances and recognizances. He beholdeth how they pervert foundations and will not bestow the bequeathers free arms, but for bribes or for friendship. I pray God that they take not the like course in preferring poor men's children into their hospitals and converting the impotent's money for their private usury. It's no wonder that the great and the good of the city were offended. Nash was sent to prison in mid-November 1593, but was released sometime before Christmas that year following the intervention of Sir George Carey. He travelled to the Isle of Wight with the Careys and spent Christmas with them at their family home, Carisbrook Castle. A second edition of Christ's Tears Over Jerusalem included a toned-down version of the same sentiment, with a changed viewpoint so that it was a warning of what might be if Londoners did not keep an eye on themselves. He then published Terrors of the Night, a review of apparitions and other strange happenings in 1594, and dedicated it to the Careys as a mark of his gratitude. But then he drops off the radar for a couple of years. It seems likely that he was working in the London theatres for a while, until the summer of 1597. Which brings us to his collaboration with Ben Johnson 
the Isle of Dogs. It's a great shame that this play is now lost, because it was the cause of events in the summer of 1597 that rocked the whole world of London theatre. Events that therefore remain a little mysterious. But this is the story of the affair of the Isle of Dogs, as best as we can know it. It all started at the end of July, when the Privy Council issued a new order concerning theatres. By 1597, theatre managers must have been used to the closing of theatres for specific reasons and for a specific time frame. It was part of the hazard of running a theatre, and however unpleasant having to close your theatre for a period was, it was just part of the arena that you operated in. However, the order in July 1597 was of a different magnitude, and it must have come as a bit of a shock even to the experienced hands. The order was issued to the Justices of Middlesex, which, as you know, were the local justices who enforced the council's orders in the county, just outside the City of London, where the theatres were located. The tone of this announcement was different from any of its predecessors. This one was not about concern for public health, or even for public morals, and had added weight because it directly mentioned that the Queen herself was concerned. That concern was because she had become aware of, and I quote, very many great disorders committed in the common playhouses, both by lewd matters that are handled on the stages and by resort and confluence of bad people. As far as that order goes, we can't be completely certain that it was the production of the Isle of Dogs that had been presented at the Swan Theatre that was at issue, because the order is not specific about the cause. Further doubt can be cast on the matter because the dating of the fragments of the evidence that we have about the closures of the theatre in London that summer is not easy. So it's possible that this was a general prohibition on theatres, the sort of order that happened regularly, but then Lord Pembroke's men, the troop playing at the Swan, then continued to perform and either intentionally or maybe by accident broke the order. That would have caused the issue to have become a much more serious one, a matter of dissent, which could be interpreted as sedition. The order mentioning the Isle of Dogs play specifically was not issued until a month after that initial order, though some sort of offence heaped upon an initial order is a distinct possibility. As you will remember from the episodes about the state versus the theatre, it was quite common for the Privy Council to address an issue by issuing a rather generalised order, and then finding it necessary to follow it up a few weeks later with something more specific and worded more directly. You also need to know that Francis Langley, the theatre manager at the Swan, had previous form with the Privy Council, and that these actions by the Privy Council were likely to be at least partly aimed at him in person. He was a goldsmith by trade, and had crossed swords with the Chief Minister and the leader of the Privy Council, Lord Cecil, before, over a stolen diamond that Langley had allegedly had a part in trying to sell. That matter appears not to have been resolved, and it's likely that there was still some bad blood between Cecil and Langley over that matter. So, as we often find, the picture and the motivations of those concerns are muddy in the record but it does seem likely that Cecil had a score to settle with Langley. The best guess is that there was something in the play that the Privy Council could make a fuss about, and they were only too happy to do so to get at Langley, and the theatre managers in general, who were always testing the boundaries of what they could get away with. 
Given the circumstances and timing of events, it seems most likely that the catalyst, if not the direct cause of that turbulent summer in the London theatre, was this troublesome play. The order continued by stating that there were to be no more plays performed in any public place within three miles of the city until All Hallows Tide next. All Hallows Tide, which we now call All Saints Day, the day before All Souls Day, more commonly known now as Halloween, the 31st of October. And the order saved the worst to last. The council demanded of the magistrates that ye do send for the owners of the curtain the theatre and any other common playhouse, and enjoined them, by virtue hereof, forthwith, to pluck down quite the stages, galleries and rooms that are made for people to stand in, and so to deface the same as they may not be employed again to such use. It's difficult to imagine what the theatre owners thought when they read this. The closure and then destruction of a theatre would destroy not only considerable investment, but the income stream too. With London theatres closed permanently, the less certain and less profitable touring model would be the only option, setting theatre back into the Middle Ages. It was a bleak outlook, but there was some hope. The order didn't mention all of the London theatres by name, so those not mentioned might just have had a hope of being excluded from the order, especially if they had the right connections at court. The theatre owners were used to trying to squirm their way around orders and pulling any influential strings that they had. There was, no doubt, a lot of scurrying around between the theatres as the owners tried to work out exactly what the order meant for them and a lot of pleading to their sponsors, some of whom sat on the Privy Council. So, what can we say about the content of The Isle of Dogs? Unfortunately, the suppression of the play was so successful that we have no details about it. So what follows is pretty much speculation. The name Isle of Dogs comes from an area of London downriver from the city. In Elizabethan times, and indeed for a long time after, it was a marshy, boggy place that the river flooded over regularly, so much so that at times the peninsula became an island temporarily. Clearly there is a satiric intent here, as the word isle is also often used in the descriptions of the whole of the island of England and later for the United Kingdom, in phrases like this sceptred isle. Nash was a satiric playwright and Johnson a keenly observant political one, so it seems fairly sure that this was a satiric piece and presumably a much more cutting one than those that had gone before and remained censored but performable. The sceptred isle was perhaps being portrayed as an island impoverished by worthless characters. The realm was insulted, in a similar way in which Nash had been seen to insult Londoners before. But it's also possible that the satire of the play was even more personal than that. The Isle of Dogs could have been a jibe at the Palace Placentia, where the Queen kenneled her dogs. This palace was located on the river in Greenwich, between the city and the Isle of Dogs. The palace was a favourite of the Queen's, so was often the location for meetings with the Privy Council. It's hard to think that Nash and Johnson or the other players would have aimed satire directly at the Queen. That would surely have been not been tolerated and would have led to a charge of treason. But, perhaps, the play portrayed the Council as her lapdogs, and lampooned current members of the council just a bit too closely. That might explain why they felt the need to disrupt theatre so thoroughly. 
but then stayed their hand by not actually tearing down the theatres. Perhaps the Queen was not directly insulted by the play and rather enjoyed the discomfort of her councillors. The order had made its point and Cecil could have his revenge on Langley, but for a play-loving Queen, perhaps destruction of the theatres was a step too far. It would certainly have been an unpopular move with the population of London, something that a monarch always had a keen eye on. As I said, this is very speculative, but I rather like the idea of Elizabeth reminding her indignant councillors that they should be big enough to rise above these annoyances and ordering them to quietly drop the plans to start the demolition of the playhouses. We will never know what was said around the Privy Council chamber or privately between its members some of whom loved theatre, some of whom wanted nothing more than to see it closed. So let's return to the written evidence. In his record of activity at the Rose Theatre, owner Philip Henslow mentions hiring a new actor to his company on the 10th of August that year, saying that he was required for the resumption of theatre activity in October and that the restraint is by means of playing the Isle of Dogs. So we can be sure that the London theatres were closed for three months. Some further details come from government letters. About the same time that Henslow was hiring in preparation for the winter season, Richard Topcliffe wrote a letter to Lord Cecil. Topcliffe was a government enforcer who had the job of seeking out plots against the Queen and her government. He spent much of his time hunting Catholic priests and was notorious for the torture he inflicted on those he caught. In his letter to Cecil, he mentions an informant who was the first man that discovered to me that seditious play called The Isle of Dogs, which he describes as, of, and I quote, a venomous intent and a preparative to some far-fetched mischief. Topcliffe was further involved in the affair when the council informed him that Ben Johnson and two actors had been arrested on account of the play, and that he was to interrogate them in prison to see what is to become of the rest of their fellows that either had their parts in the devising of the seditious matter or that were actors or players in the same, what copies they had given forth of the said play and to whom, and such other points as ye shall think meet to be demanded of them. Given Topcliffe's reputation, Johnson and the others must have been apprehensive when they were dragged out of their cells into his presence. One can imagine a room hung with the instruments of torture on display to intimidate, if not actually to be used. It's probably not too far from the truth. Johnson was lucky that by this time, Topcliffe had been ordered to curtail the most excessive of his practices, and he lived to tell the tale. When he recalled this period of his life years later, he claimed that he never said more than yea or nay to his inquisitors. From what we know of Johnson's character and history, it is believable that he resisted, and this is not just the boast of an old man, but we do only have his word for his stoicism and bravery. Nash was also investigated by Topcliffe. The council had ordered a search of Nash's lodgings and they had seized some of his papers. Nash fled the city to avoid prison, but he mentions the affair in that pamphlet that he wrote a couple of years later, Nash's Lenten Stuff. Nash says that he has to write this pamphlet in praise of Great Yarmouth because he was lent money in the town while he hid out there and this is his way of repaying their kindness. He compliments the town for its herring industry in a typically comic and satiric style. As a part of this work, he mentions the play that gave him so much trouble. 
He claims that he only wrote Act One of the play and that it was completed without his involvement or consent by the players themselves. He says the whole affair was, and I quote, the strange turning of the Isle of Dogs from a comedy to a tragedy two summers past. And goes on to say that the completion of the play took it in a direction that he had never intended. He calls this a misjudgment by Johnson and the others that bred both their trouble and mine too. It sounds a lot like Nash trying to distance himself from the whole thing, but given two actors were in prison with Johnson, his version of events is at least plausible. The Isle of Dogs is Nash's last known theatrical work. There is no further evidence of him being in London, and after the publishing of Nash's Lenten Stuff in 1599, he isn't heard of again. We don't know exactly when or where he died, or in what circumstances, but sometime in 1601 is generally accepted because there is a short poetic eulogy to him in The Parnassus Plays, which were written no later than 1602. Of unknown authorship, these were satiric comedies concerning the progress of students through their studies, and were performed by Cambridge students for an audience of students in London on three successive Christmases. So there is a connection there with Cambridge and the London student life, which may be why Nash gets a mention here. The passage reads, Let all his faults sleep with his mournful chest, and there for ever with his ashes rest. His style was wit, though it had some gall, some things he might have mended, so may all. Yet this I say, for all his mother wit, few men have ever seen the like of it. For a decade, Nash was a prolific writer, and with his death coming not more than a pretty barren period of four years after The Isle of Dogs, it's tempting to think that that near miss, when he might have been very close to being imprisoned with Johnson and the others, put him off writing for the theatre for good. As far as the London theatres go, there is no evidence that the order to tear them down was ever officially rescinded, but perhaps, over the next few days, cooler heads managed to calm the situation once the theatres were closed and it was simply possible to ignore that part of the order, instructed to do so by the monarch or otherwise. Thomas Nash is often consigned to a few lines in surveys of the period, which I think is a little unfair. Although his theatrical output was small, there is every indication that he was influential with his friends, particularly Green and Marlowe, and thanks to his keen eye and sharp tongue, he has left insights into their characters that we would not otherwise have had. For me, his life acts as a decent summary of what it was like to operate as a literary artist in London in the 1590s. At a time when dissent meant a real physical threat to your personal safety, Nash and his contemporaries were willing to put themselves out there and make their art political and contemporary. There is also a sense that as life was likely to be quite short and brutal, they were going to make sure that they enjoyed it. Nash was part of the Cambridge set that gave early Elizabethan drama much of its impetus, and for a while they ruled the London stage. Until, that is, they began to work with that upstart from the country. Next time, we move on to the first of the great Elizabethan playwrights with the story of the short life and brutal death of Christopher Marlowe, another Cambridge man who found fame and fortune in London, but also became embroiled with the darker side of the Elizabethan world of spies and foreign espionage.
In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related things. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing to do would be to pass on the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history. Or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast on your podcast app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There is also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. The section of this episode on the Isle of Dogs is also covered in the Patreon episodes as part of the Henslow's Diary series, which gives a much more detailed view of the life at the Rose Theatre thanks to this valuable document. You can also find details for that on the website and there's a link in the show notes. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.